0: haven't gotten a chance to meet yet. Uh, I see a lot of new faces, a lot of old faces, but a lot of new faces as well. My my name is Justin. Uh, A little bit of background on us, Uh, me and my family, my wife and our three boys, we've been a part of this congregation for eight years now. And uh, back in January, uh, we were sent out to go try and do something very hard. Um, We we were sent out to replant a native to the area church plant that was uh, on the East Coast. And we asked God, and, and you all joined us in that prayer, and, and uh, as, as a good family does, we asked God to do something beautiful in the city of Palm Bay. And, and I report to you this morning that God has done something beautiful in the city of Palm Bay, but according to his sovereign and divine timing, he did not do it for as long as we asked him to do it, and that's okay. And so on October 31st, we held our last service as a Crosspoint Coast congregation out in Palm Bay. And now my family and I, we still live out east, uh, finishing off our lease on our home, and we're going to enjoy the coming holidays and And then we're going to pray and petition, or we are praying and petitioning, for the Lord to do something new with us in this season. And so as our extended family, I I would ask you to join us in that prayer. But enough about us. Are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Are you ready to study your Bibles this morning? Great, me too. My assignment to you is the proclamation of this good book in front of us. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 And while you get there, I would like to lay down some groundwork for our time this morning. This whole year, you and I have been studying the gospel of Mark. And to our benefit, we have seen Jesus ever so closely. We have uh, seen, heard his every word. We've seen his every action and intention. We have seen his feeling, even felt some of the things he has fell. This letter of love is written by a guy named Mark. Mark's life is a sermon within itself. He goes from failed disciple of Paul to the writer of the first gospel written. And, and God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines, doesn't he? Oh, I said let your inner Pentecostal flow. It's going to be a hard 40 minutes if we keep doing this. Mark is writing this letter to a church in Rome. This church has a lot going on. They are a people arguing within and amongst themselves over which ethnicity does the faith belong. Does it belong to the Jews? Does it belong to the Gentiles? We know this because Paul wrote the letter of Romans at uh, at almost the same time. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark to the same church in Rome. This is a letter written to a church that is also persecuted. They are not allowed To gather freely in the city to worship. Instead, they are gathering in secret, driven to the catacombs, the crypts, underneath the city to worship. So this is a letter to a persecuted church externally and a divisive church internally. And this letter has made its way from first century Rome into your hands in Orlando. that's, That's crazy. That's crazy. It's a letter about a revolution, about an overthrow of a social order. It's a letter about a kingdom, a kingdom of every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's a letter about a king, a king who is greater and better than any president or mayor or governor or any leader, historical and present, that you've ever heard of. A leader, Mark tells us, who is a servant king. A king who did not come to be served. He did not come to wield his power, his influence, his prestige to serve himself. Rather, this letter is about a king who means to display his compassion and justice in all that he does. Mark says this is a king who came to serve. And where we find ourselves this morning in this letter is at a place of immense darkness, our king, this king that I just described for you, is dead. In state-sanctioned murder, powers that rule over this world have attempted to exercise their authority in an attempt to undermine his. You must be quiet this morning because you do not know about this Jesus, and I'm excited to tell you about him this morning. We pick up this book in a place of hopelessness, in a place of depression, in a place of sadness, Church, for 15 chapters, we have seen the humanity and deity of Jesus simultaneously on display. For 15 chapters, we have read, studied the wonder, the authority, the power, the ability of Jesus. For 15 chapters, what we believe to be reality in the confines of the laws of nature has been repeatedly challenged and contextualized in light of a man who is a person of the Trinitarian God storms being calmed, water being walked on, children coming back from the dead, sicknesses that have no cure being cast out by touching his clothes. For 15 chapters, we have read and seen things that are truly out of this world, things that if they happened right in front of you today, you probably would not have a mental or even theological category for. Jesus. Our king is dead. King Jesus, the liberator of your body and your soul is dead. I don't think you understand the gravitas of what I'm saying, not because you're unable to, but because I cannot give words to properly portray this. Our king is dead. Our king, who came into this world in human form only to live on our behalf, is dead. His life is dead was lived for us. He not only accomplished and satisfied the requirements of all God's laws, never sinning, never yielding to the temptations of this world. He also exemplified to us the way that we should live, being agents of grace in the world to the least, the last and the lost. He moved with compassion and patience. He spoke with clarity and authority. His emotions were stirred constantly for those around him and those most in need of him. He lived. His life was for us. And as Pastor Steve laid out last week, he died for us. He simultaneously gave up his life and was murdered for us so that the prophecies may be fulfilled so that the veil would be torn, giving us direct access to the Father, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, satisfying the judgment and wrath of a holy and righteous God. Church, his death, like his life, was an instrument in the orchestra of his mission. You don't have to say amen. I know it's true. And yet, family, there is something strange something unsettling, can we even say something doubtful about this whole experience? There lies a thought in our minds and in our hearts that maybe this is just another good man dead, that maybe there is no greater significance to this. You could be sitting here a skeptic or in the midst of a deconstruction or decolonization of your faith, and in your rightful sensitivity could be asking, you keep saying that all of this was for me, but how do I see it realized in front of me today? Well then, friend, I'm going to ask you to hang in there, and let me yell at you for a few more minutes, because our text this morning is the foundation, the pillar, the lighthouse the compass, the cornerstone of our faith. What you and I are about to read is both unbelievable and undeniably true. That what it's going to take for you to actually believe it is an act of God himself. And I can't wait to see that happen for you. And so I've tagged our time together this morning, Sunday's Saints. As we see that just like his life, Just like his death, so too was his burial and his resurrection. Big Brother Mark is going to lay before us some beautiful observations concerning the details of the most beautiful morning in the world, a morning that the world in all its years will not see again until glory comes to take us home. If you don't mind and if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word and then would you pray for me as I pray for you? as together we hear from the Lord this morning. Mark 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a, a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of, of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your immeasurable kindness towards us. That we get to gather in this place, sing your praises, feel the embrace of our neighbors, and sit under the weight of your word. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. May you continue to gift us with ears to hear it, eyes to see it, softened hearts to receive it, and able bodies that will do its work. Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors? In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm a, I'm a big Harry Potter fan. Gryffindors, what up? <clears throat> Around this time of year, I, uh, I watch all the movies or I read or listen to the books. Uh, just last night, I finished the sixth book, began the seventh. And uh, if we can spend it, like we did a couple weeks ago, or we get a good hookup, I'll even visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios. If you've never gotten into the whole thing I get it. You're missing out. Um, and the summary that I'm about to give you is a completely botched experience. But anyway, there are multiple things beautiful about this story. Multiple things. One thing that sticks out in my mind is we, as I think about the journey that Mark has taken us on, is that Harry is an orphan who spent the first ten years of his life alone, longing for belonging. Longing for friendship, longing for love. And he gets that in the school that he ends up attending. This is all first book, first movie. And he gets in this school, and all the deepest longings of his heart are met. But specifically, the longing for companionship. He has two best friends, but as you can imagine, in a story like this, there's multiple characters involved. And Harry loves them, and they love Harry very much. You fast forward to the end of the journey. Harry must do something incredibly hard. He has to put his life on the line to save this world that he's come to love. To save his friends, Harry must give himself to the end of the journey. It is truly a brave thing that he is undertaking. What's fascinating to me is that at the confession of what must be done, At the confession of the cost for liberation to come to his friends, Harry, in an act of love, attempts to go through it alone. He sits everyone down, and he says, this is what I got to do. You guys are not coming with me because I love you. I want to protect you. I'm going to do this on my own. And they say, don't be an idiot. Yes, you do have to do this, but we're with you until the end. We're not leaving you. This is a response fitting for a fairy tale. This is a response fitting for fiction. This is a response you and I hope would be on our lips if a friend said the same things to us. But the reality is that's not always the case. Stay with me for a minute. One thing I've loved throughout the study of Mark is not just the totality of who Jesus is, that would be primary, but secondary the response Jesus gets from the people around him. Jesus has told his disciples, and by extension us, numerous times that he will die. Numerous times that he will be buried. You read this book. You know he said it. Numerous times that he will rise again on the third day. But in the presence of the darkest day in history, those men, those 12 men, would be nowhere in sight. They all left him. When Jesus goes through the hardest things, his friends are nowhere to be found. You would think they would be there. You would think that they would trust his word. You would think that after all they saw, all they'd been through with him, all that he taught them, That they would be there confidently knowing that this was not the end. But no, they abandoned him, left him. And yet, church, the work of his death prevailed. Even still, the work of his death was accomplished for them. Our portion begins with a guy named Joseph. Joseph was a Pharisee and a devout one. The other gospel accounts let us know that he was wealthy that he was friends with Nicodemus. In fact, John tells us that Nicodemus is here with Joseph throughout this whole experience that we just read. And so when I say Joseph, like Mark says Joseph, you in your mind can imagine Nicodemus there also. The Gospels say Joseph was a closet Christian. Joseph secretly believed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, the Pharisees on the whole they rejected Jesus completely. That that wasn't the cup of tea they were willing to drink. Those are Joseph's people, the Pharisees, the same ones that are responsible for getting Jesus killed in the first place. Joseph has gone this whole time without his job, his own people, knowing that he secretly believed Jesus was not a fraud. However, family... It's the death of Jesus that compels Joseph to step out. Joseph, empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly and bravely leverages his power, his influence, his status to appeal for the body of Jesus to receive proper burial according to tradition. God give you ears to hear this this morning. This is a great risk for Joseph. According to the law, You had to be either a direct relative of the deceased or a known disciple of the deceased to receive their corpse to perform the traditional ritual of burial. Joseph is neither. Joseph has been in private believing, trusting that Jesus was the Messiah. That's not okay. God will never call you to a life solely of private devotion. Let me be clear, you have a relationship with God personally, but that relationship is tested, strengthened, tightened in community, in the household of faith. If that doesn't sit well with you, think of the dangerous encouragement this is to the first century church reading this letter. If they were to profess themselves in public as followers of Jesus, they would be sent to the Colosseum to die as the city's entertainment. And yet in our context, you may freely worship Jesus without consequence. And yet some of you who believe do not. Some of you here, just like Joseph, you are still fearful of what your faith in Jesus means for your reputation. Or some of you, are proclaiming to be his. And yet the exercise of justice is not what your life is preaching. How easy it could have been for Joseph to stay believing and quiet. And how easy it could have been for Joseph to allow Jesus' death, which was an act of injustice, continue to be unjust by denying Jesus' body proper tradition keeping. See, Mark is telling us is that God can make you what he needs you to be to carry out his mission. You're not hearing me this morning. Jesus lived keeping the law, yeah? Yes, okay. But he's got to stay fulfilling that law unto his death. He's got to be buried appropriately. God didn't use Peter. God didn't use John. God didn't use James or any of the other Disciples who would have been properly qualified to ask for his body to do the ceremonial burial. I'm preaching to myself. God used a coward. God used a Pharisee, an enemy. God made Joseph into what he needed him to be so that the law could still be kept on Joseph's behalf. Jesus in his humanity is dead. But Jesus in his deity is sustaining Joseph's body to do what Joseph needs Jesus to be so that his salvation may be complete. You're asleep this morning and Thanksgiving is on its way. I feel bad for you next Sunday. Family, let the life of Joseph preach to you this morning. Some of you need to come on out. Understand that this is career suicide for Joseph. His wealth, his livelihood, it's all on the line. Joseph is leveraging everything for the justice of God to be exemplified. Leveraging everything for salvation to come to the least, the last, and the lost. Friends, I ask you, what are you leveraging? What are you hiding from? What are you withholding from the world to preach to them? And justice may rule this kingdom, but God's justice rules in mine. Thank you we got a believer in the room. Joseph pleads for the body, puts it all on the line, and obtains permission to bury the body. And then Joseph and Nicodemus get to work. They achieve as much of the ceremonial burial process as possible. See, they are on a time crunch. They have, according to the Mishnah, according to the law, according to tradition... They have 24 hours. And today is the day of preparation. It's the day before the Sabbath. And the sun is going down in a few hours. They're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. So they can't do this tomorrow. This needs to be done as quickly as possible. And here's the thing, church. Here's the thing I need you to understand. The ceremonial washing before the burial... It's not a pretty process. Jesus has been hanging there. The Bible called him a corpse. Jesus has been hanging there, covered in his own blood from head to toe. He has opened wounds all over his body. There are literal holes in his hands, his feet, and his side. It is Jewish custom to clean the body before you wrap it in clean linen. And anointed with spices. This work is tough work to do. It's stomach turning. It's filthy. And it's usually done by women. This was not for the men. Especially men of prestige or wealth. And yet here these brothers are. I need you to understand something. Joseph and Nicodemus have been both strengthened by the death of Christ and made weak because of it too. They have been given boldness and humility. And it shows by happily doing work that is to societal standards at this day beneath their station. Society at this time says this is either a slave's job or a woman's job. But not now, not to these men. Their identity is completely made new. Joseph put everything on the line in boldness, then sacrificially gave up his own family tomb, spent money on the linens and spices and everything that was needed. This is no small detail. And then now they are doing the work of laying Jesus to rest properly in humility. And here's the thing. There were women right there. We know that there was at least three of them right there, and two of them were Jesus' own relatives, which means that they were more than qualified to carry out this process. By all societal standards and traditional standards at this time, it is the women present who should be doing this work. Joseph could have rightly said, "Mm -mm -mm. y'all do this, I'm not doing this. And that would have been right and correct. But no, no. To Joseph, society will not determine to him what his actions should be. You're not hearing me this morning. But the leading of the Holy Spirit will. At this moment, the women will observe and instruct the men. Men don't know how to do this job. Joseph wants to, has to do this himself. If anybody walked by this tomb and looked inside, what's going on in there, and saw men cleaning the body, wrapping the body, spicing the body, while women were like, okay, so first you got to do this, and then you got to do that. This is a scandalous moment. I don't think you understand. This is a scandalous moment. These men would be ridiculed. Does not matter. They will do this. You know why? Because the grace of God makes you into what you are not on your own. I'll say it again. The grace of God makes you into what you are not on your own. They finish what they can. Jesus is cleaned. He is wrapped. Some of the anointings are done. Enough to last until they can come back. So they roll the giant stone over the entrance and place a guard to watch over it. Jesus has been buried. Family, like his life, like his death, his burial was for you too. This is just not some bit of historical information. All of this was for you this morning. Christ in his death is still teaching you in his servant's example here. Let Joseph preach to you, family, that the gospel both strengthens you and weakens you. That the gospel makes you recipients of grace, agents of justice in the world. That the gospel compels you to come up out of your self-centeredness to orient your life around him instead. The gospel compels you, teaches you, that there is no offering of this world, no power, prestige, reputation wealth from which the gospel itself cannot free you from the kingdom of this world may have crucified our Lord but the gospel sing to us a different song a song that soothes the aching hearts of mothers who just lost a child, a balm for the sisters who just lost a brother a remedy for the broken to be made new, a song of courage for the coward, a hymn of humility for the proud, the gospel sings a song for his children on frightening Fridays and in the Of sad Saturdays. And that's what comes next. Saturday. I don't know how to say this to you. Again, it's not your it's not your inability to understand, but there are no words that I could use to to carry the weight. I don't know how to how to say this in a way for you to feel the looming depression that the Sabbath day brought. Jesus has died. The disciples, except John, who came around eventually, are nowhere to be found. His body was laid down and placed behind a huge stone. It is over. The revolution has ended. The kingdom has ceased. Satan is ecstatic. The Pharisees have triumphed. The skeptics have been proven right. And the loyal have been humiliated. Family, this is where familiarity with the story is most dangerous to us because we don't talk about Saturday. We don't talk about what a quiet day does after trauma has been experienced. We don't talk about what Saturday is the death of Christ was so gruesome, so traumatic, that any and all talk about resurrecting all the examples of bringing the dead back to life was not a thought in anyone's mind. Saturday is the day that everyone remembers the beating, remembers the mocking, remembers the crushing of Jesus' body. Saturday. Is where the darkness of Friday is remembered most. Some of you this morning are Saturday saints. Some of you are spiritually living in desolation, living in the shattered dreams, living in the guilt, living in the shame, in the heartache, in the depression of Sad Saturday. Everything that has been taught to you is not present in your mind. What's present in your mind is the darkness. The despair. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this text says, The fact is, there are more people living today in the despair and darkness of dark Saturday than have ever lived in the drama of Friday or the victory of Easter. If the story ends here, we have a right to be in this state. In this Saturday state. But there's another side here I wanna talk about. For some of you who are emotionally disconnected, that's not a criticism, that's just what it is. For some of you, you're more cerebral. You don't feel the despair, the the depression, the darkness. What you need is understanding. You need it to make it make sense. How does this impact your life, your theology now? Let me tell you. If the story ends on Saturday, all you have is salvation. Your sins were paid for, and that's it. If the story ends on Saturday, all you have is atonement. Jesus lived a perfect life on your behalf, committed his life, and then committed his life as punishment for your sins. The wrath of God poured out on him, which means God saw Jesus' life as a worthy trade for yours. But if the story ends on Saturday, that's all you got. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't understand what the problem is. Isn't that the gospel? No. That's part of the gospel. And what saddens me, family, and I say this because I love you, I have to warn you, is that some of us here are operating under a theological Saturday-only framework. There was salvation and a Sabbath, and that was it. There was election and predestination. Ephesians 1 stops at verse 5, and there was nothing. Nothing else matters. There is no more depth to the gospel than that. You may not believe that. You say, Justin, I don't believe that. But I've seen plenty of lives lived, words said, conviction shared. Like dark Saturday is the day your theology was made full. Friend, I tell you, your theology is as depressing as the Saturday. Do not give in to the trap that half the gospel is the whole gospel. Without Sunday, we are just Saturday saints. Christ's cosmic humiliation of suffering as a king Holding the universe together in his deity, but living perfectly in his humanity to then die a criminal's death for the sins of others, for the sins of us, was significant, was a significant act of humiliation. Without Sunday, Christ is not your master. Death is. Oh, you sleep. I'm sorry. Without Sunday, you are pardoned from sin, but not free from sin's effects. Without Sunday, we are ruled by death, controlled by death, living in light of death because death remains undefeated. But family, I have good news for you. I have good news for you. Sunday came. Sunday morning came. Look at verse chapter 16, verse 1. The next morning, Sunday morning, Mary, Mary, and Salome went to the tomb with spices to finish the anointing. I'm paraphrasing because I'm running long. But the women came upon the tomb, and they saw that the sealed tomb, which was sealed on Friday, is no longer sealed. That stone has rolled away, and they are perplexed. They are confused. The tombs then had an entrance, an antechamber, I believe it's called. It's like a room before the room, right? Your foyer. You roll the stone away, you got a little hangout space. I guess the dead like to chill. And then you have a little hall, a little doorway that leads to where you actually get buried. You know, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they, they walk in the antechamber like, who did this? And they see, the other gospel accounts let us know, that they see two angels. Mark focuses on the speaker, which is typical to Mark's writing. He's very to the point. But we see that there were two angels, which is also appropriate for the time. Because when someone says something unbelievable, it's got to be backed by a witness. We still do that today, right? Even then, we still don't believe it. We got 30,000 people saying something. We're like, nah. So God provides the second angel as comfort, as assurance that what they are about to hear is indeed true. I need you to see the love of God wrapped up in this text, family. The angels say, ladies, we know who you came here to see he ain't here. We know who you came, we know who you were expecting. He's gone. They say, and just in case you still doubt, I know you came here to see Jesus, the one who was crucified, confirming his death. I know you came here to see Jesus of Nazareth, but he is now alive. Resurrected bodily. Angels say he ain't a ghost, he not a phantom, he not a spirit, he is actually bodily resurrected into immortality. And the angels say, You still don't believe me? Go and check. Go and see for yourself. And they did. There was nothing there. Family, Christ's humiliation set in motion his own exaltation. It's Jesus who said earlier in Mark, whoever humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Some of y'all read your Bible. Thank you. And Jesus experiencing cosmic humiliation is now supremely exalted in his resurrection. Christ who died on our behalf overcame death by divine vindication and physical resurrection. This is good news, church. This is good news, church. Our God is not dead. Our Jesus is alive. Our King has returned. And this was not just some flex of his wonder and power. No, Jesus resurrected for you. Jesus resurrected for you. Jesus resurrected to show you that not only the power of sin was crushed with his death, but the power of death was crushed with his life. When Jesus entered this world in Mark 1, he ushered in with him a new kingdom, a revolution of sorts, a kingdom whose king, a kingdom whose king would lead its citizens in love and in war. Because the world in which the kingdom exists is volatile. The world outside the kingdom only seeks to destroy the kingdom. But as long as our king stands, Oh, i say it again, as long as our king stands, there are no forces who can shake it, no forces who could destroy it, no forces who can put it away. When Jesus died, the king of the kingdom died. When Jesus died, the revolution ended. Oh, Amen. It seemed for a time, church, that death would rule. It seemed for a time that sin would still get the final say. It seemed for a time that the end of the kingdom was nigh. But our king returned, conquering sin and conquering death, and he did it so that the citizens of that kingdom and its kingdom may advance. Jesus' resurrection is good news. Let me see if I can help you out on a different level because you're quiet. I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, oh, okay. One of my favorite scenes in all the MCU is what I'm about to describe to you, but I've got to give you some context. Wakanda is a kingdom of promise. Wakanda is a kingdom of peace, a kingdom that stands as a symbol of everlasting prosperity and hope. See, the king of Wakanda is both king and warrior. It is the king's duty to not only lead the citizens of the kingdom, but to protect them with his life. One day, there is a challenge for the throne. One day, the embodiment of wickedness comes to see himself as king. It's no coincidence then that this embodiment's name is Killmonger, and he must kill the king to become king. It appears to all who witnessed the battle that Killmonger had won. It appears to all who witnessed the battle that the king is dead. Despair reigned among the kingdom. And evil paraded itself. But a few days later, oh, some of y'all seen the movie, a few days later there was an explosion. And out of the rubble, Stood the king dressed in his warrior's attire and shouts to the wicked man, I never yielded, and as you can see, I am not dead. Family, on Friday, death thought he won. On Friday death thought it reigned as ruler of the kingdom And and as Friday turned to Saturday despair covered its citizens like rain and Sunday came and from the tomb Jesus rose and told death I never yielded and as you can see I am not dead. Our king Jesus rose both as king and warrior conquering sin and conquering death with his life and he did it for you so that sin nor death could never rule you. I love what the angels say next. They say, go tell his disciples. That's verse 7. Go tell his disciples. His who? His what? Go t- the ones that left him? The ones who abandoned him? The ones who were disloyal to him, yeah, them. Go, go tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter because he's in bad shape. Go tell them the news and then go meet your king. Oh, family. I'm getting sweaty shouting at y'all. Some of y'all lived as Friday saints. I'm going to try not to yell anymore. Some of y'all lived as Saturday saints. Some of you have lived with doubt. Some of you have lived with grief. Some of you have lived with shame. Some of you have lived in an unrealized Sunday morning. Some of you got Saturday-only theology. Family, Sunday came for you. And Jesus wants you to know, you who have been disloyal, you who have grief, you who have not lived... For the justice and love of God to be displayed in this world, you who have guilt over your sin, you with anxiety about death, you who have experienced trauma, that none of those things can hold you any longer because your king did not yield to them and they never conquered him. You can see today, you can see tomorrow because Sunday morning came for you and there's nothing you can do, nothing you can say, nothing you can think that keeps you from Sunday morning. Jesus, because of Jesus, you have access. Because of Jesus, you have the freedom to run into his arms. The grace to be his agents of justice. The mercy to be crooked sticks making straight lines in this world. The ability to be an instrument in the orchestra of his love. Sanctification, discipleship. It takes on a whole new dimension on Sunday. Christ as the living King will no longer be challenged by any satanic power, any human, any physical power, no longer, not ever. We can now be assured of what Paul says in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us From the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he has been raised in him, the final age, the new creation has dawned. It is here now. Joy is invincibly washing over this world because he has been raised. Church, Sunday came for you. I'm going to get out your hair here. I'm going to get out your hair here. Mark concludes this portion with the note that the women left astonished and trembling. The Greek here is that of quivering and consternation or anxiety had taken them. It's alarmed astonishment in the wake of divine intervention in the regularness of life. It's a legitimate awestruck at divine revelation. I think it's an appropriate conclusion. For our time together. Because at first it seemed like something of the responses we have seen in Mark before. Right? At first it seems like something of the responses that have always happened in light of the supernatural workings of Christ. If you have been with us throughout this study, then repeatedly... You have been subject to the reaction of the limited human understandings of the people around Jesus as a response to something incredible he has done. There was a, I don't know how to process this kind of response in the disciples. When the awesome power and revelation of Christ comes into your vicinity apart from him, gifting you the understanding you have no skill, no wisdom, no effort you can muster to reconcile it in your mind. I said I wouldn't shout. I, I don't want you to leave this place without hearing this, family. You need God's help to understand a man walking on water, a raging storm silenced by a whisper. 5,000 demons fleeing at the sound of his voice. The lame walking, the fever reducing, leprosy clearing, deaf hearing, the blood drying up. Can I keep going? Thank you. The clean... The unclean being made clean. The Gentile saving. The Mishnah keeping. The Sabbath redefining. The friend of sinners and tax collectors. The revolution raising. uh, Fish multiplying. I'm almost done. Friend rebuking and friend adoring. The sword disarming. The child embracing. The daughter naming. The law preaching. The transfiguring. The women empowering. The coward encouraging. The perfect life keeping. The death battling. The Sacred burial having, and the death defeating, you need God's help to shout this morning. You need God's help to shout with your life, that is my king. That is my Jesus. And he did it all for you and for me. I wish I had someone who understood this. He gives you, sitting here this day, access to a kingdom where all he accomplished will never have to be accomplished again. It was a once and for all kind of accomplishment. It is a finished kind of accomplishment. It is done. And so my invitation to you is come and be Sunday saints and live no more in the trauma of Friday or the sadness of Saturday and know, friends, that when you do find yourself in those states of mind, Sunday is on its way so that you can sing confidently there in the ground, his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day. Up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his. And he is mine. Stand with me in worship.